Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. Today, our theme is Waiting on the Cross with Jesus. Waiting on the Cross with Jesus. And today, I'm going to share with you a uh, a sermon that I did on this topic, uh, on a really a topic and a theme that's been central for me uh, over the years, coming out of Mark uh, chapter 15. Now, as we know, the cross is the central symbol of our faith. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins and the sins of the world, and he took the judgment that you and I deserve. But the cross also is the pattern of our lives, uh, and everything that happened to Jesus in some way happens to us. Uh, that, in other words, we follow the life of Jesus, and that's why he said, whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross uh, daily and, and follow me. And so as we read and study the life of Jesus, we see our lives as well. And so one of the greatest moments in the life of Jesus was actually him on the cross waiting uh, for the Father. Uh, it's been said, properly said, that there, the greatest miracle in Scripture is the resurrection of Jesus. But the second greatest miracle in Scripture is him waiting on the cross, hanging there. And the miracle that he doesn't do anything. He waits on the Father. He trusts on the Father. He resists all the temptations of the evil one uh, coming through the people around him to jump off that cross because he sure had the power uh, to do so and take things in his own hands, but he doesn't. Uh, so he doesn't hurry. He doesn't distract himself. And, you know, so this message, we're going to talk about the great temptations that come to all of us to jump off the cross uh, and uh, versus cooperate with God in his slower deeper ways of working with us, in us, and through us to the world. And so our great passion here at Emotionally Healthy Discipleship is that we're building churches and culture, church cultures that have depth and integrity to them. At one of which is that we follow Jesus even on the cross and we wait on him in that place, but that gets worked out very practically uh, in the churches that we're building. And so let me just, before I send you off to the sermon, recommend to you, if you've not downloaded it, uh, the, our little booklet, uh, it's a free booklet, Six Marks of a Church Culture That Deeply Changes Lives. And uh, it's found on our website, emotionallyhealthy.org slash churchculture. Uh, Six Marks of a Church Culture That Deeply Changes Lives. And it looks at things like slow down spirituality, integrity and leadership, healthy community, passionate marriages and singleness, and but all of which involve waiting on the cross with Jesus and getting kind of a depth spirituality uh, that we want to offer to the world as a gift. So let me invite you now to just tune in here and listen to this uh, message on waiting on the cross with Jesus. A lot's been written in the last few years about the impact of the internet changing our lives. In fact, uh, Nicholas Carr wrote a book a couple of years ago called Shallow, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And in it, he took all the research that's been done about the impact of this new technology of the web and the internet and how it's transforming people. And so he, he, he talks about, again, based on these studies, how people who used to be big readers of books, even folks who are philosophy majors, wrote scholars, writers, uh, are no longer reading books anymore the way they used to. Because it's very difficult to sustain attention through reading a long article with all these nooks and crannies to it that uh, even book, book lovers have moved to skimming. And that skimming is the primary way people read these days. And they kind of, we jet ski through information. We actually go to websites for less than, I think it was five to 10 seconds before we move to another website. And so the attitude is kind of like, why bother uh, 
when I can Google whatever information I need and get it instantly. And so uh, th- as a result, our brains have shifted. And what's very interesting, all these different studies, that his, his argument is this in Shallows, that there's now an inability for people to actually pay attention and to contemplate things for a long period of time. That it's been, he basically analyzes all the technological shifts through history, and his argument is basically that the internet and the web is a technology that has so shifted and changed people's lives that it's catching us with such speed that we're even unaware of it. And the reason I picked up this book by Nicholas Carr is because I recognized in myself a change. I mean, I'm a big reader, love books, but in the last couple of years, I'm realizing that I've gotten deeper into the web and Facebook and all that, that my gosh, I'm finding it more difficult to read long books and to stay with them. And fascinating study. And, I, and, and one of the things that's picked up is how vacations have changed for people. Uh, they, they say that the new future in vacation spots is going to be what's called black hole resorts. And what they are are basically hotels and resorts that charge high prices so you can go to a place where you cannot get online. You can't get TV. You can't get the web. And so, for example, there's one ranch in Colorado I researched for $2,285 a night. You can have a room without a TV. In fact, the walls are impervious to your wireless signals. I'm thinking about opening up one of those right here in Queens. People can take a technology hideaway. So here's one of the places right now in Colorado. It's called Black Mountain Ranch. And uh, here's what they say on their website. We've always been a place to unplug and to step out of the technological fray. We love the idea of a guest falling asleep reading a book rather than listening to TV. Instead of spending multiple hours online, you can take a hike in the Rocky Mountains. Instead of texting or online games, your children can go fly fishing and take as much time as they want in a saddle. So if you're looking for a black hole resort, basically pay us a lot of money and come visit us. Anyway, it's very interesting. And now in places like South Korea and China, there are what's called internet rescue camps for teenagers to go and get basically unaddicted uh, to being online. You can actually purchase a software called Freedom Software. It's very popular now. That basically you can download it and it enables you to basically disable it, locks you out of any internet connection on your computer so that you can get some work done. And it says, as the advertisement says for Freedom Software, Freedom Software frees you from distractions. It allows you time to write, analyze, code, or create. So I say this because uh, there's many things impacting you and I that are changing us. God lays out a plan about change in scripture that comes through the cross. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, about God changes us much more deeply, more powerfully, more freely, uh, and for good. And so today's message is actually called making space or making room to wait on on the cross out of of, uh, Mark chapter 15. So before I read a text, let me just make a couple of comments here. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. I mean, it is, it is the, it's a symbol of our faith. That's why you see crosses all over the world. The faith is that fact that Jesus Christ uh, lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death on our behalf. He, he bore the judgment and the wrath of God that all of us deserve for our sins. He took it. He drank that cup and he rose from the dead. And so through Jesus and his cross, we are able to have a relationship with God freely by grace and mercy because he died on our behalf. But the cross is more than a symbol. According to scripture, the cross is also a pattern for our lives. That when you look at the cross, you and I are saying, oh, that's what happened to Jesus. But in the same way, everything that happened to Jesus in some way is meant to happen to me. And that my pathway of freedom and transformation 
is to follow Jesus through that cross. And so we've got verses in, in the New Testament, for example, things like in Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily, notice the word daily, and follow me. And then Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but, but Christ lives in me. And, and so this cross is meant to be a pattern for us. As you and I think through our lives, understand, understanding that transformation and deep change is happening as we embrace the cross. I'm going to call it today, we wait on the cross with Jesus. So our theme here, and we're going to read the text in just a moment. So before I go any further, before you read the text, I want you to think about a question with me, and it's this. What is the cross that God has placed before you now? What is the cross that God's placed before you now? So let me give you some examples so you can identify one, and you can keep that in mind as we move through the sermon. So, for example, a common one is, is someone's hurt you, maybe through words or action. They basically murdered you, and, and you're struggling with loving your enemies. And loving this person or persons, and and you're carrying this because a part of you wants to kill them, and you know you're supposed to love them. And so this cross is, Lord, how do I let go and and forgive them and not be bitter? So that that may be your cross you're carrying right now in that relationship. It may be there's something that you need to do right now that's before you, and you know it's the right thing to do. Uh, It may disappoint your parents or some friends or coworkers, and if you do it, you realize you will be misunderstood. In fact, you may even have some negative consequences come your way. But you know it's right and it's God's path for you. Or it may be it's a hard thing that you need to do. It's, you have to confront somebody like a boss or a co-worker uh, and, or maybe break off a relationship. And it's hard. And it's a cross for you to do it. And you're more tempted to run. But it's your cross before you right now. Or maybe it's a difficult singleness that you're in and maintaining your sexual integrity and purity. It's a cross for you. Or maybe it's, it's a marriage that you want to run from your marriage And it's the hard work of being in it. And it's a cross for you to have to get into this. Uh, It may be your cross is a disability. Maybe it's a wound or a limitation that you're carrying. Uh, Something that happened maybe a long time ago. But it's damage that's been done to you in the past. And you recognize you're carrying some scars. Uh, Brendan Manning, some of you know him, he's he's an author. He writes about his scar or wound that he carries as part of his cross is the terror of abandonment. And he goes, I, 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 I struggle with performing well so that people will think well of me. And so I carry this performance-driven thing in me that I have to constantly deal with so people will like me. So again, whatever it might be for you, and maybe something other than that, I, w- I want you to, to, to identify a, perhaps it's an aggravating circumstance or a frightening circumstance that you find yourself in that right now for you is a hard place. Uh, it's, it's your cross that you're carrying right now. It's like, your will, you know, is going to be different than God's will, and it's a struggle for you. And again, it may be something like unemployment or, or caring for an aged parent or a broken relationship, whatever it might be. So do you all have one? Do you got one? Some of you, some, some, some person said to me, I have about 15, Pete, okay? But just try to identify one big one that you're carrying perhaps right now. Because the invitation today is going to be that you would take this, but you're going to wait on the cross with Jesus. You're not just on the cross, but you're with Jesus and, and, and uh, you're, not simply, you're not jumping off the cross, and you're not simply adapting yourself to a difficult situation. You're, you're, you're not simply trying to do the best you can. You're approaching it differently. You're actually, you're actually in this moment of, um, with your cross, and, and you're hopeful. You're, you're courageous. You're actually confident. You're, you're standing erect, and you're facing the reality that's surrounding you. But with all your heart, 
you are remaining in relationship with Jesus. You're, you're staying in communion with him, connected to him. You're, you're, you're waiting, you're listening, you're open, you're allowing him to do whatever he needs to do in you, and you're, and you're trusting that on the other side of that cross is a resurrection. And so you stay. Because when we're waiting on the cross with Jesus, something happens in us. That can happen in no other place. But not only in you, something's going to happen in you, and then it's going to happen through you. But first it's got to happen in you. And it can happen. His pattern for your transformation is not internet. It is through a cross, which leads to a resurrection. It's really, we think it's the worst. And God says, no, you don't understand. It is the best. The other side of this cross is not death, but life and, and resurrection. It's the pattern of Jesus. It's the pattern for us. And so really, it's, it's like James chapter 1. Many of you know the verse in James 1, 2 to 4, where James says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kind. When you find yourself in crosses, because you know that the testing of your faith, it develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, if you will wait on that cross... Something happens inside of you that you actually mature. You become complete. You become the true man, the true woman that God has destined you to become. In fact, there is no other way to get there but through the cross. So with that, let's read Mark 15. And it feels like death. It feels horrible. You know why? Because it is. It feels like death because it really is a death. Something is dying. So that something can come forth. The challenge is to hold on to not just the death, but the resurrection at the same time. So let's read Mark 15, beginning at verse 22. Mark 15, verse 22. Thus says the Lord. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Underline that. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour, or 9 a.m., when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, amen. There's two great temptations that Jesus faced on the cross, and they're the same temptations that we face as well, as we are hanging there, holding on to what God, holding on to Jesus, waiting uh, in our own cross. So the first is this: is the, is the temptation of distraction. Now, I want you to look at look at look at verse 23 because they're taking Jesus to the cross, the place of the skull, Golgotha, not a nice place, because going to die is not a nice thing. And, and they're going to crucify him. Now, now it's interesting. Crucifixion was the considered the most horrendous way to die in Roman times. 
because you suffocated uh, through crucifixion. And actually, Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. And so uh, it was only for outlaws and slaves and Gentiles. And so they divide up Jesus' clothing, which is interesting. They cast lots for his clothes. And so most scholars believe that Jesus was crucified naked because Romans would do that to further shame the person. And so here he's being shamed. And so right before he's about to be crucified, uh, in verse 23, and you'll see it there on, on, on text there, it says, they, they offered him, someone offers him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And, and so Jesus is, is in this holding place now. He's about to be crucified. He's in tremendous pain. And, and they offer him basically like a morphine. It's like a narcotic, a, a drug, something to basically take away the pain of the cross. And, they, and uh, we don't know if they were well-intentioned or not. It doesn't say. But what's so interesting is, is they wanted to ease his pain and they thrust it on Jesus. Now, he refuses it. Okay, because he is going to enter fully into what the Father has for him with a clear mind and do the Father's will and, and, and fully take it. He's not going to distract into anything else. But it's so much like our culture. As we find ourselves in pain, we look basically something to ease it. Some, people thrust things in our face, right? Some of you know it's all about pornography. Something to ease your pain or, or spending or drinking or drugs. Something to get out of your pain or shopping. Get busy. And uh, the world does it to us all the time. But Jesus refuses. He's going to stay alert and, and clear in his mind. He doesn't want to compromise what the Father is doing in him and through him. The second temptation is a little bit different. And it's actually found in verse 32. And you'll notice that at the cross, he's, he's on the cross hanging there. And they begin to mock Jesus. But the, the, the heart of the temptation comes in verse 32. where They say, let him come down now. The word now is the key word. Let him come down now from that cross, and then we'll believe in him. And uh, it's a temptation to hurry. Because it's so painful, I want to get this thing over with. I, I don't want to wait here. And Jesus died, uh, as we just read, profoundly misunderstood. His words were twisted. His motives were twisted. Crucified between two basically terrorists, that he was just one of them trying to overthrow Rome. He looks arrogant. And a little bit crazy, you know, a temple standing, and you're supposed to rebuild the temple in three days. Doesn't look like things are going very well, Jesus. If you're really the Messiah, do something now, and the temptation is to hurry. Some scholars call this the second greatest miracle in the entire Bible. Because it's the greatest, the greatest miracle Jesus ever did was the miracle they say that he did not do. Right here. He waits on the cross, and he waits with the Father on the cross. And he doesn't do anything. He waits. He communes. He's in a relationship. He's listening. He's waiting on the Father. But he does nothing. Now, the two great temptations, distraction and hurry. Before I go any further, let me, just try, let me tell you a story that kind of begins to open up this passage for us so we can get a handle on it. It's a true story about a couple. Uh, the wife's name is Jan and the husband's is Steve. They were married for 42 years. Uh, they got married right after college. They had three grown children. Uh... Uh, the youngest child, uh, at, at this point, when this story is going to take place, he's, this youngest child is 32 years old, and he has uh, Down syndrome. Uh, and so on New Year's Eve 2005, the husband, Steve, approaches his wife, Jan. And he sits her down and says, I've been having an affair for the last 10 years with a woman in the office. I'm moving out to move in with her, and you should file for a divorce because I love her. She writes this, Jan, the wife, my world collapsed and I wanted to die. 
Can you relate to that? So she goes, I went to Kevin, our 32-year-old son with Down syndrome, and I explained to him that Daddy didn't love me anymore, but he loved him very much, and that wouldn't change. And so Steve, the husband, moved out of the house to an apartment about a mile and a half away. And here's what his wife writes, Jan. She goes, for almost three years, he came to our home for part of every weekend. He provided for our financial needs. He called almost every morning to see if we were doing okay. But for me, every encounter was a painful reminder of his absence. The heaviness of depression would hit me at any time. I wouldn't want to do anything but just sit for hours at a time. So on the advice of some pastors, I began seeing a Christian counselor. I had no clue who I was as an individual. We'd gotten married right after college. So I grew to depend, I grew to depend on my husband for basically everything. I was, and so I was aware of myself and my, my uniqueness. And so what happens is she begins to work on herself. And, and um, she, she becomes a, a hospital-certified harp therapist for patients. She begins to learn how to keep a budget and manage money on her own, something she never did before. She actually joins Weight Watchers, begins to lose weight and take care of herself. She began to learn how to communicate and confront others in a healthy, effective way. Her confidence begins to grow. And here's what she says. She wrote this. She goes, I couldn't change a thing about my situation. I could only change myself. So I asked the Lord to take complete control of our lives. I relinquished, this relinquishing of control freed me to focus on one thing, focus on changing and improving me. Now, during this three-year period, Kevin, uh, her 32-year-old son with Down syndrome, he, he was a big prayer. So he's always praying for dad to come home. So he would go to church, and they were in a, in a church, and they were in a Sunday school class together. And to every single week for three years, he would ask the Sunday school class to pray that my dad would come home. And, um, and they'd say, yeah, sure, Kevin, sure, Kevin. But as they told later, they didn't really believe he would ever come home. But they prayed it every week as Kevin asked. And uh, they said, you know, he had a stronger faith than we did. And then what happened is over time, the husband, Steve, who had left, he began to see a change in, in Jan, his wife. And what happened is, is she began to be attractive to him because she was now, you know, a confident person and efficient and standing on her own two feet. And, and, and basically over time, what happened is he, he, he realized, I mean, what a mess. And he, after three years later, actually almost to the day, he came and humbled himself to her and repented, verbally apologized, not just to her, but to everyone that they knew for what he had done, including the church. And he met face-to-face -face with family members, and he asked for forgiveness. And here's what Steve wrote, the, the husband. To this day, I'm convinced that the prayers of Kevin moved the hand of God, maybe even, slap, maybe even slapping me inside the head to get my attention for what I was doing and to change my ways. And actually, of course, the marriage, it came back together. And it's actually quite a fabulous story. Jerry actually met the couple and, and Kevin in New Jersey. And here's what Jan, his wife, said in closing. She goes, in 44 years of marriage, I had never seen him cry. But now I begin to wonder if he'll ever stop. <laughs> That's how much he changed. Now, when you think about the cross, she was, she was, she was waiting on God on the cross. Now, it ended well, didn't it? Now, she could have distracted herself. She could easily have numbed her pain, right, when this thing happened. I mean, and we would have said, you know, she could have, she could have done anything to, stop, to not feel the pain anymore. Uh, and, and so what we do in our culture, I mean, we have a number, number of ways that we numb our pain. So one, obviously, is addiction is, is the, 
is the big number of choice to distract ourselves, whether it's alcohol or sex or drugs or shopping or spending or going from relationship to relationship. Uh, getting busy is a way to distract ourselves. We just get super busy, uh, even doing good things. I, I notice some people are hanging on a cross. You know what they do? They get religious in a sense of running from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. So there's no time to actually think and feel it and focus. Uh, it's very easy to get consumed in technology. Facebook, video games, Twitter, check an email a hundred times a day. I know I've done it, you know. <laughs> they say the average American now spends at least eight and a half hours a day in front of a screen, referring to TV and, and a computer. That's not including phone time. Eight and a half hours a day. And, uh, and so the average teenager sends at least 75 text messages a day. And so we just want to distract ourselves. It's so easy. I don't want to feel, I don't want to wait on a cross and be in pain. I, 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 so I want to distract somehow. Someone's offering us, you know, wine mixed with myrrh. A great way to distract, I know, is denial. Pain? I'm fine. How are you? God bless you. I'm good. Good. <laughs> One of the things I like to do to distract, I just start blaming. I'll blame Daniel. If I wasn't for you, I wouldn't be in this pain. You know that? And so I go after other people. Something to get off my own situation. But a real common one, it's interesting, I had two, three people come to me for a service about this one, and it's something I, I know I do sometimes and we do, it's like we distract by going into a self-loathing mode and a self-hate mode. I'm a terrible person, if, you know, I bet this doesn't happen to anybody else, it only happened to me because I've made so many mistakes, I'm such a screw-up, and, uh, and we miss what God's doing in us. We don't see him anymore, all we see is ourselves, and we end up getting distracted from because God's doing something here, do you understand? He's carrying us. To wait on him on a cross because he's taken us somewhere to a resurrection. He's taken us into a place of, of stripping out of us some things that don't belong to our true selves. Stripping our false selves. Setting us free to actually love him, love other people, love ourselves. To get free from what other people think. But what happens if we get distracted, that deep work of God in us gets aborted. And it's not birthed. And we end up jumping off the cross in a sense. And we don't see it through. Because it's taking too long, and we don't see a resurrection because we got off. I mean, Jan could not just have distracted, she could have also hurried. She could have easily jumped out of her pain and done what? I mean, if she had gotten married within the first six months, we, said, we would have said, good job, Jan. He's a bum anyway. <laughs> Who misses him in the Sunday school class? <laughs> but it would have been easy for her to basically... Not remain in this place and work on herself. And just like replace the relationship as quick as possible and, and move on. And, uh, I mean, I often think of Jesus. If I was on the cross and he's hanging there waiting on the Father. Uh, if I was Jesus, I'd say, listen, Jesus. And those people are mocking me. I'd say, you know what? I know your life. Get my laser out. I'll teach you a thing or two. Jump down and attack them a little bit, you know. We say often here that behind our rebellion or turning away from God very often is fear. You know, we're afraid, is God going to come through for me? Is God good? So I'm not sure. So what I do is I, I take control of my, of my life. But scholars and theologians also say that, the, that right behind fear of why we end up turning away from his love is impatience. We get impatient as a root of sins. Judas got impatient because his plan was taking too long of God. He just said, I'm out of here. I can't see where the resurrection of the kingdom is right now. You know, human beings have always been in a hurry. I, I know myself, it's one of my great sins. You know, not, not just our generation in the 21st century. Now, I don't know about you, but, I mean, I, I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting in traffic jams. I definitely don't like waiting at red lights. 
In fact, I recently got a ticket from a, from a machine that was watching me as I, <laughs> in Manhattan as I kind of just inched out there as it was yellow turning to red and they sent me a gift of a $50 <laughs> certificate that I could help New York City's budget deficits, and, which I gladly did in the name of Jesus, you know. You know, I don't like waiting. I don't like sitting down, I realize, for breakfast. I just rather eat standing up. It's faster, you know. I don't like waiting for people who talk slow. So I tend to help them and just complete their sentences. I don't like, if I go to a fast food restaurant, I want the food fast. I don't like fast food restaurants that are slow. Drives me crazy. I don't like going to bed at night. I, I, I go to bed. I put my head in the pillow. I don't like waiting to fall asleep. I just want to hit the pillow. Boom. See eight hours later, seven hours later. You know. So the problem is that you and God, we're on different timetables. It's a big problem. To the Lord, a thousand years are like a, a day. Well, what turns out to be a long time to us, for God, is a moment. It's an instant in time. And so... What seems to us it's dumb and pointless, this waiting, for God is filled with purpose and meaning. And so from beginning to end, you've got this theme in Scripture of God teaching his people to wait on him. And so you've got, for example, in, in the Old Testament, you've got Joseph waiting 13 to 20 years. He's, he's imprisoned. He's, he's in a foreign country. Life's going terrible until God finally resurrects him. Moses waiting 40 years in the desert. Israel waiting 40 years in the desert for the promised land. I mean, um, Abraham waiting 25 years. For his first child. Okay, 25 years. And so patience, though, in, in Scripture is not just this virtue. It is rooted in something different for us. It's rooted in resurrection. We wait on the Lord because we're oriented to a future and something God is doing. That you can't separate the cross as you're waiting on that cross with resurrection. Because it's coming. And so, because Jesus and the Lord Almighty, they're on that throne. And so, as we're waiting, we're holding on to, yes, it feels like death, but I know something is true. And that is, on the other side of this death is a resurrection. That the Lord Almighty is on the throne, he rules and reigns, and you may feel like nothing is happening and you're wasting your time and you're at a dead end. But God says, no, this is not a dead end, this is actually a new door. I'm enlarging your soul, I'm opening you up, I'm bringing you to a whole new promised land, and I can't get you there until I first strip you and kill some things. And change you so I can do, I'm doing something in you. But not just in you, I'm going to do something through you. If you'll wait with me on the cross and go waiting with Jesus and not jump off through distraction or hurry. God says this in the book of Revelations, I will make all things new. And you're, and you're, and you're hanging there and it feels like, it all feels old to me, God. The Lord says, I will make all things new. You wait on that cross with me, remaining, connecting, etc. And so, uh, it, what's interesting, because what's happening is you're being gently and quietly on that cross, purified by God. Something is happening in you that can happen in no other way. That's why every follower of Jesus must follow the pattern of Jesus. And that is through that cross... And through into resurrection.
But that is the pattern. There are no exceptions. Now, as you study this passage, you'll notice that they're throwing these jeers at Jesus. If you're the son of God, come on down. If you're the son of God. And the same words, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that Satan says to Jesus in the wilderness temptations. Because the demonic is present at that cross. As you are waiting with, on the cross with Jesus, there is a huge spiritual warfare going on. Just like there is for Jesus at this moment. And they're saying, you're the son of God, Jesus? I mean, you're a Christian. You're supposed to be blessed and loved. Your life doesn't look very blessed and loved. It looks like everything's going bad for you. If you're really loved by God, you better do something. And that temptation to distract, that temptation to hurry, Jesus resists it and waits. And there are people saying, who are actually mouthpieces of the evil one saying, save yourself and do something. Again, jump off. Don't wait with Jesus because it's not working. This, friends, is the moment. There are all many, many moments of we're being transformed by God. But as we're on that cross waiting, and you know your situation right now, friends, hear me. This is a critical moment for you because God is doing something deep. Deep in you with far-reaching consequences that can happen no other way. Walter Wink, theologian, writes a lot about powers and principalities of darkness. And he writes about there are powers and principalities of evil that work in institutions. For example, in states, sometimes governments, in politics, in school systems, in police departments, uh, in cultures, in, in nations, in, in cities, but also that work in families. And we talk a lot about New Life, how God's called us to come out of our families and cultures. We bless them, but he's birthed us into his new family, the family of Jesus. And we're called to live a whole new way. In those moments of waiting on that cross, there is something so deep being broken in you and against evil that I can't explain it. Why did God choose to have resurrection follow crucifixion? Why must we follow the pattern of dying daily in order to be resurrected to new life? I am not fully sure I understand it. I just know it's true. And when Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, he says, I'm weak, but I'm really strong. For Christ lives in me. And so when you remain, when you persevere, when you stay in communion with Jesus, even though everything in your body wants to run, God is birthing something large in you. Something more than you ever dreamed. Walter Hilton, this 1300s theologian from England, he wrote this. He says, what's happening in your moment, you think it's darkness. It can appear to be a dark night. He says, really, it appears dark because there's so much light. It's God's light and love is so invading your life. It looks dark. It's going directly into your soul because God's changing everything because he's separating you from all that's less than him. So sometimes an outsider can see that the light you had before was a false light, but God's now pouring into your life something so pure and beautiful like you've never known before. So in the helplessness of waiting on that cross, and it is a feeling of helplessness, we learn something. We discover afresh what the Bible calls poverty of spirit or brokenness. Humility. We actually become softer people if we let him do his work. We, we, our soul expands in its capacity to receive of God. We are stripped of all that's not of him that's in our lives right now. We get free of actually what other people think. We actually get free of finding our identity in what we do or what we own or have. We actually begin to get something about my identity is rooted in the fact that God loves me in Christ. I have nothing to prove. Friends, the cross, waiting on the cross with Jesus is the slow, deep way of salvation. 
There is no other way. That's why Paul writes this. He says, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you're saying, power for salvation, but it's power for your life. And so it represents the pattern of our lives. So here's what I want us to do. So, so, so we can learn a couple things from Jesus right now here on this cross. Obviously, God's doing a resurrection in you and through you. What does Jesus do? He stays in communion with the Father. He stays abiding with the Father. He stays in relationship even though it doesn't feel good. And that's his invitation to you and I right now. But interesting, a second thing's happening here, and we'll talk about it next week in the second part of this message. In verse 40, you're going to notice there's some women who are watching from a distance. Jesus has some companions, they're the women, who are watching from a distance. You are on the cross, no one can do it for you. No spouse, no friend, no, no neighbor. It is you and God. Yet we all need spiritual companions with us on that journey. If Jesus needed spiritual companions when he's hanging on that cross, how much more to you? That's why, thank God, we have all these connection events going on because we recognize we all, we all need them. So that's why in 2012, it's a big theme for us. So here's what I want to do. I want the worship team to come on forward. And I want us to, to, uh, to do an exercise together for just a couple of minutes. It's very tempting when you're on waiting on the cross with Jesus, seeking to abide and commune with him, to start going downward about how I didn't do a good job and I got to try harder. But the key is to allow Jesus to love us as we're waiting. And so this exercise is really an invitation. I don't want you to distract. I don't want you to hurry. I want you to let Jesus love you. And so we're going to take Psalm 4610, which is up there on the PowerPoint behind you. Be still and know that I'm God. And I'm going to invite you to, 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 with me, we're going to do a little meditation on this verse. But through the scripture, I want to invite you to fall into the arms of the Father for you. To allow him to just hug you and embrace you through this meditation we're going to do on this scripture. Okay, so let's all together, I want you to say the verse with me, Psalm 4610. You ready? Be still and know that I am God. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the verse a little bit at a time. So, uh, And so uh, you'll be B. And I'll take about 15, 20 seconds. And you want to hear, hear it as God saying to you, just be. You don't have to do anything. Then the Lord's going to say, be still. And just let those words just go through. Let the Father's love just embrace you. Then it'll be be still and know. And then it'll be be still and know that I am, says the Lord. And then I'll close by saying be still and know that I am God. And just let him embrace you. Okay, so I'll, you don't need to, you know, open your eyes. You might want to close your eyes because I'll do it bit by bit, starting with B. And uh, so let's all, you know, bow your heads for just a moment. I want, you, I want to invite you to experience. I invite you to experience the word or phrase at a time. And between them, just allow yourself to rest in the arms of your Heavenly Father through this text.